Well, this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up Matthew chapter 20. We'll begin uh, reading at verse 17. Matthew chapter 20. It says, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road, and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Well, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons kneeling down and asked something of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. So he said, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom the Father has prepared. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. And Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Father God, as we just open up your word, we just ask, Lord, that your spirit would guide us and lead us. Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart willing to receive. God, we ask that your perfect word would just come forth, Lord, and the things which are not from you would wash away. And what we would be left with is that word from you for us today. God, we give you all the thanks and the praise for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look at this section of scripture in Matthew chapter 20, we have laid out for us, well, something that's fairly familiar for those of us who have been studying for any time. Jesus, for the third time now, is letting the disciples know what is ahead of them. Now, they're on their way to Jerusalem. This is the trip. This is the trip as they're moving forward where Jesus is going to give himself that perfect sacrifice. And as they're heading their way toward Jerusalem, on the way... The scripture lays out for us something I think it's important for us to understand. In the, in the greater scheme, the greater understanding of this section, we see God saying to us that he's in control. And I think there's three ways he lays that out for us, in, and especially these first couple of verses. He's going to lay them out for us in this way. One, he's preparing his disciples ahead of time. Three times he told them. Three times he said, this is what is coming. Now, for you and I, we already know what happened. Put yourself in their place. You're standing next to, arguably, one of the greatest teachers of all time ever, God in the flesh, I believe. 
And as he's standing there and as he's laying out for his disciples and doing these incredible works of healing and this incredible job of teaching these concepts that are so mind-blowing to the people that are listening and, and checking him out, as he's doing all those things, his heart is to prepare the heart of his disciples for what's coming. And I want you to realize that he does the same thing for you today. He does the same thing for you today. He knows what's coming, what's around the bend, what's around the corner. He knows what struggle you're going to face, what difficulty is going to come into your life. He knows those events that are laying out there. And so your life is structured in such a way that God is preparing your heart That God is trying to make a way for you. Now, we don't always understand what God's doing in our life. Right? And sometimes we think, Lord, what are you doing? Do you forget where I was or what's going on? Don't you think that's how the disciples felt every time Jesus said, Hey, we're going to Jerusalem, and when we get there, these specific things are going to happen. Lord, that's why Peter said in Tiberius, that's why he said, Far be it from you, Lord, that that would happen. Far be it from you. And the Lord had to look at Peter and say, Get thee behind me, Satan. You do not understand the things of the Spirit. He didn't understand the things that God was doing. Sometimes that's where we are in life, isn't it? Sometimes for us, we look around and we don't get it. We don't understand it. But God was preparing their hearts. After the, the events of the crucifixion and the events of the resurrection occur in the lives of the disciples. Do you think the messages, the, the things that Jesus shared with them began to come back? Oh, you know what? The Lord said it was going to be like this. God told us that we were going to face struggles like this. The Lord said he was going to go here and do these things. The first thing we see in these first couple of verses is that idea. One, that Jesus is in control. He's in control of what's taking place. He knows what's coming, doesn't he? He knows the events that are laid out before him. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 says, Men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he would be held by them. Peter in the first sermon says, hey, this was all part of God's plan. God has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a purpose in your life. He has a purpose in the events that are taking place in our life. He is sovereign and he knows what's coming. And because he knows what's coming, he in love, is trying to prepare the hearts of his disciples. Doesn't he do the same thing for us? Don't the scriptures lay out for us the same kind of concepts? The same kind of ideas? James 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. What is that? It's the same thing. It's the same thing Jesus was saying to his disciples. 
He doesn't say, count it all joy if you fall into various trials. Did he? Nope. He didn't say if. He said what? When. When. So we can't expect it, right? Doesn't the scriptures declare to us all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what? Shall suffer persecution. It's what the word says. God knows what's on the horizon. Maybe we think we've seen the worst of it. We haven't seen the worst of it yet. Maybe we think we've gone through these horrible things. Whatever we're going through, it's all been to prepare us. Isn't that what James goes on to tell us? He goes on to say in verse 3, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The things that we go through are all things that God is doing and working in us to prepare us for what we don't yet see. And sometimes we're so blinded by the the problem that's in front of us, we can't realize the grace that God gives us to deal with it. That this fits into God's plan. That most things work out for good to those who called according to his... Oh, no, that's not what it says. All things work together for good. That's right. And remember, when we studied we studied in the Greek, we said, the first Greek lesson, everybody remember? In the Greek, all means all, and that's all that all means. That means everything. All things work together. All things are working together. All things are having that perfect purpose within us. Listen, in 1 Peter chapter 4, this is what the Lord declares to us in verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is about to try you. Now, you probably don't have these verses on your fridge, but they're not bad things to put on there. It's not a bad thing. Listen, don't consider it strange, a fiery trial that's about to come upon you. The Lord is saying, be prepared. Be prepared for the events in your life that are going to cause you to look at God and be disappointed, to be frustrated. You don't think the disciples felt that way when Jesus was being crucified. You don't think they felt disappointed? They left all to follow him. They walked away from their boats, from their businesses, from their families. They left it all behind in the hopes that Jesus was going to fulfill all their plans and all their dreams. And then they stood on that day when they arrested him and scattered into the wind. And here and there would hear little bits and pieces. Peter and John would see it. You don't think they were disappointed? You don't think they were thinking, man, what was going on? You remember the two guys walking down the Emmaus Road? Remember what they said? We had hoped that he was the Messiah. <clears throat> and so Jesus, unbeknownst to them, begins to reveal them to them through the law and the prophets. By the way, folks, that's the Old Testament. Begins to reveal to them all the things that the Messiah would suffer. All the way to the point when they sit down for a meal there on the Emmaus Road and Jesus breaks the bread, their eyes are open and they go, wow, this is Jesus walking with us and we didn't even know it. And then he was gone. Man, the the attitudes that we need to recognize as we look at this scripture, so often it's easy to read. Folks, we can read this. I could just say this is the third time Jesus warned them. We could all go, yeah, I don't know why they didn't get it. And then we can go on. 
Or we can realize it's the same thing that God is, is saying. He's evidencing for us. Hey, I am in control and I'm trying to prepare you. And just like he was trying to prepare them, he tries to prepare us. Don't consider it strange. How many of us have thought, this is strange, the thing I'm going through? Come on, don't lie, you're in church. Man, we, we all have felt that, but that's what the word lays out for us. Don't think it's strange. Listen, listen to what Peter goes on to say. He says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. And when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. He said, rejoice in the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. You know, the scripture lays out to rejoice. And again, I say rejoice to, to, to have joy, rejoice always, to have joy in all things. What's the joy I'm going to have? The joy I'm going to have is in the Lord. It's keeping my eyes on Him in the circumstances. It's rising above the circumstances that are oppressing me at that time and having joy in the Lord. That the disciples, listen, we're going to read in a moment that Jesus was taken to Caiaphas' house and He was beaten. Now, we go a few weeks later, the disciples are taken to the same place and beaten on the same floor. The blood that Jesus had on that floor, they also flowed onto that floor. And when they left, you know what they said? They counted themselves blessed to be worthy to suffer with Christ. Because the same way they treated him, they were treating them. Jesus had told them, remember, a servant is not greater than his master. If they hate me, they'll hate you also. This was the the preparation that Jesus, who knew all things, who has all things under his control, we really struggle with that concept. But nonetheless, he's preparing the hearts. He's preparing the hearts of the believers. Now, we want to know, what, what, what was the disciples thinking? Listen, in Mark chapter 10, we have a parallel account. Mark chapter 10, Luke chapter 18, parallel this story in Matthew chapter 20. Listen to what it says in Mark chapter 10. It says, Now while they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus going before them, they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. See, they were afraid. They are afraid about the stuff he's talking about. They are afraid about the, the events that light out before them. They were afraid, so he took the twelve aside again. And began to tell them all the things that would happen to him. The point is not Jesus, well, my disciples are feeling kind of down, so I'm going to tell them some more bad news. That's not the point. The point is the disciples are down and Jesus is saying to them, I have it all under control. Let me tell you what's going to happen. I want you to look at this because these two verses we could fly through, but we're not going to. We're going to take a look at him for a couple of minutes. Take a look at what he said. As we take a look, the the second thing, first he prepares the hearts. He says, hey, I'm going to try to get you guys ready. And the second thing we see that shows us his control is he predicted everything that was going to happen to him. Let's all practice that, okay? Let's predict everything that's going to happen to us in three weeks. You guys got it? Oh, that's the difference between God and us, huh? God knows what's going to happen. 
And he wants us to find comfort, not that life is always going to be easy or simple, not to consider it strange when the fiery trials come or when we face difficult times, but to realize when we face difficult times, God's hands are there. He knows what's happening. He is working a purpose. And he says, trust me. Trust me. We've got to come to that point. The first thing he said, this is utterly and completely, totally beyond his control. The first thing he lays out for them is he says that we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, by the way, which is a messianic title, will be betrayed to who? The chief priests and the scribes. First thing he says is we will, or I will be betrayed. He's, he's laying it out for him. He knows the events are about to take. Now, even up to the day when Judas betrays the Lord, the disciples didn't get it. They didn't even consider that he was a betrayer. They weren't sitting there going, yeah, you know what? Judas is kind of a sneaky guy. He's always wearing that black hat. You know, we always have that help in the movies, right? The fellow with the black hat, he's got to be the bad guy. The guy with a white hat, he's a good guy. But in here, they don't have any idea. They don't have any concept of what's going on. That the scripture laid out for us, hey, he's going to be betrayed into the hands of the religious leaders. And the Bible tells us that all these things were spoken of in the scriptures. So flip with me to Psalm 41. Flip with me to Psalm 41. And we're going to see where the scriptures talk about this betrayal. Betrayed into the hands of the religious leaders. Psalm 41, verse 9. The psalmist, David, writes a song. In the song that David writes, as he's pinning out this song, he's saying what's on his heart about a friend of his named Ahithophel. And God utilizes this experience in David's life to foretell what would happen in the Messiah's life and try to give comfort To them as well. Listen, in Psalm 41, verse 9, David said, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel up against me. Now, this is about the time where people say, Oh, you're pulling that out of context, applying that to Jesus. Oh, okay. Let's let Jesus do that. How do you feel about that? John 13, verse 2. The supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, go on to verse 11, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. And in verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Oh, I'm sorry. Who made that connotation? That's Jesus. Those are red words. Jesus said, Psalm 41.9 is a prophecy about the betrayal. Not only the betrayal that happened to his father in, in the greater sense, David, since he is called the son of David, the title of Messiah, but also that it would happen to him. He who has eaten bread with me. Remember the disciples said, who is it? Who is it? He who dips. He's right here. He's dipping his bread with me. 
Then he looked over to Judas and he said to Judas, what you do, go do quickly. And he got up and he left to go betray the Lord and they still didn't know it was him. They still didn't know it was him because it wasn't obvious. But what did God tell him ahead of time? I'm going to be betrayed. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a shock. It didn't fool him. What's the point? The evidence, the things that are going on in your life, the things you're facing, the, the struggles of people who have done you wrong are not surprises to God. They're not a surprise. He knows. He's trying to prepare your heart. He's trying to give you comfort and confidence in Him. So we see the first thing. He will be betrayed into the hands. And then He'll be condemned by who? Listen, look what the Scripture says. He'll be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. And they, the chief priests and the scribes, will condemn Him to death. Is that what happened? The scripture lays out for us in Psalm 69, verse 4. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. See, the psalmist says in Psalm 69, hey, it's going to be people in power, the religious leaders, the guys who are in charge. They're the ones who are going to be causing grief. They're the ones who are going to be condemning him. Listen, it says in Psalm 2, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and what? Against his anointed. By the way, in the Hebrew, that word anointed is Mashiach, the Messiah. Against him and the Messiah, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. The desire is to destroy, to condemn In Acts chapter 4, verse 25, it says, Who by the mouth of your servant David has said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? What's he quoting from in Acts chapter 4? He's quoting from Psalm 2, what we just read. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plan a vain thing? It says, The kings of the earth took their stand, and rulers were gathered against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly... Against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined to be done. We see Jesus saying, one, not only is he going to be betrayed, Judas, we know is the betrayer, he foretold it, it happened, but then they were going to condemn him to death. Psalm 2, 2 lays that concept out to us. And then in Acts, as Peter is teaching, as he's preaching, he says, That very chapter, Psalm 2, verse 2, was talking about what the leaders were trying to do to Christ, to the Messiah. All these things given to them, to us, on the pages of scriptures, were applying to what was going on in Jesus' life. What he was saying, what he was telling them, what was going on. Leviticus, or I'm sorry, in uh, in Luke chapter 23 says, and the chief priests and the scribes stood up and vehemently accused him. That's Bible speak for they were losing their ever-loving mind. Bringing accusations against the Lord. Bringing accusations against his Christ. They were being condemned by religious leaders. But not only did he say that, look at verse 19. He says, they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. A lot of people... They ask these questions. Who crucified Jesus? Who crucified him? Yeah, we all did. 
We all did. You see, the, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the ones who should have proclaimed him as Christ, they condemned him to death and gave him to the Gentiles. That's the rest of us. And all we did was mock, scourge, and crucify. There's enough blame to pass around to anybody, isn't there? All peoples are responsible because it was our sin that put them on the cross in the first place. But you see, that's part of God's plan, his purpose. God was working. God is moving. He's working and moving in your life, in my life. He hasn't lost track of you. In fact, the scripture lays out to us that he can number the hairs upon your head. That speaks of intimate knowledge. You're Think of the best friend you have right now. They do not know how many hairs are on your head. Your husband or your wife, unless you're Joni, you have no idea <laughs> how many hairs are on his head. Sorry, Fritz. I love your little bald head, though. Jesus speaks of intimate knowledge. He has intimate knowledge on what's going on, what's happening in our life, even as he has here. So truly, they were delivered. He was delivered to the Gentiles. Mark chapter 15 says, Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. They're taking him to the Gentiles. Jesus said it would happen three times before it happened. And he gives implicit detail on how it's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm not going to be betrayed to the Romans. I'm going to be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. So the Roman soldiers come up. But who sent the Roman soldiers? Chief priests and the scribes. They grabbed him. They brought him over to Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas' house, he's beaten. He's accused. They go through all that stuff. Then they send him to Pilate. And what, they, what happens when they send him to Pilate? Mocking, scourging, and crucifixion. Well, the scripture lays out for us as we continue to take a look. He's delivered to the Gentiles and the mocking begins. Just turn to the right with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, just a couple of verses there that that I want to share with you. But listen, Luke 22 verse 63 says, Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and they asked him, Prophesy. Who is the one who struck you? Prophesy. I mean, the Gentiles, uh, the Romans, they, they just look at him like another crazy person. Just another crazy person come, but yet he was dying for their sin. They mocked him, but he never said a word. They made fun of him. He didn't respond. They put a bag over his head and they said, now we're going to play a little game and we're going to punch you and you tell us who hit you. The whole point of the game that they're playing is you cannot be prepared for the punch. In a normal, everyday, average fight, you see a punch coming, your whole body adjusts. It just happens. You don't even have to do it. It just happens to lessen the blow. But if you get blindsided, you never saw it coming. No adjustment. You take the full brunt. Oh, that's what happened when they brought him to the Gentiles. Isn't that what he said? Delivered him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. They mocked him. They mocked him in Luke 23 verse 11. It says, Herod and his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him. 
Mark 15, the soldiers led him away to the hall called the Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. I want you guys to get the view. I've been to the, to the stones that were the stones on the floor of the Praetorium. I've seen the games scratched in. I looked at the gutters that 2,000 years ago held the blood of Christ. They called together the whole garrison. Got all the guys that were down there. Whoever was there. Hey guys, come here. You got to see this dude. We're getting ready to, to, to crucify. <clears throat> we're having a blast. Hey, you're kind of bored. You're bored in camp. You don't know what to do. I don't, I don't really have any plans for today. Well, let's go pick on this guy. So they come. They have this little thing. This little circle. Looks like a pie. Next to it, a square. And on the pie, you would put these pieces that would move. And each part of that pie was something else one part was you made a crown of thorns and put it on their head another part was you gave them a, a a robe and and hailed him as king another part was you punched him another part was you spit on him it was called the king's game still there carved in the stone two thousand years ago still there they gathered the whole garrison together. They all came out and they rolled dice. And they moved that around. And each soldier took their turn. Each soldier took their turn with him. Mocking and scourging. What they do? It says they clothed him with purple and twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And then they began to salute him and say, oh, Hail the king of the Jews. They're playing the king's game. They're playing the king's game with him. They struck him on the head with a reed and spit on him and bowed a knee and worshipped him. They mocked him. Then they took off the purple robe, put his own clothes, and led him out to be crucified. You see, while the disciples are, are hearing about all these things taking place, can you understand how totally and utterly their faith is upside down? And so when they're in that point, and when they're rocked, and when they're really knocked over by what's happening in life, and the things that they're facing, God is saying to them ahead of time, I know it's coming. It's part of my plan. Sometimes that is extreme comfort. Sometimes you go, how can this be part of your plan? Oh, but you see, through the worst thing that ever happened on the face of the earth, God brought about the greatest amount of grace, redemption, salvation, adoption, election. All that is wrought in the fact that Christ went to the mocking and the scourging and the crucifixion. And God wants them to know it's part of my plan. It's part of my purpose. You can trust me. I didn't lose sight of what's happened. I didn't lose control of the world for a minute. And all these other things outside of my ability to control began to happen. No. I'm here. I'm moving on your behalf. doesn't feel like you're moving on my behalf. It doesn't change it. The truth says... I'm here. I'm here. They mocked him. In Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8, it says, All those who ridicule me, 
they shoot out the lip and shake the head and say, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You hear the mocking? By the way, those are the exact words used toward Jesus while he was hanging on the cross. And they were spoken to us first in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 begins with a familiar phrase. You know the phrase? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Words Jesus spoke from where? The cross. From the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when we turn to Psalm 22, that begins with that, you know what you have in Psalm 22? 800 years before crucifixion existed, a description of the crucifixion, of what he was thinking, of what he was going through, of the struggles he faced, that his bones were out of joint but not broken, that his hands and feet had been pierced, 800 years before the invention of crucifixion. David, Psalm 22, 8, gives us a highlight. Why? Because all these things that happen, happen according to Scripture. They happen according to the Word. It's part of God's plan. It's part of God's purpose. Not only did he talk about the mocking, but then he's talked of the scourging. John chapter 19 So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Simple phrase, right? You see, what Jesus had already had in the beating under the Jews was what's called the 39 stripes. Everybody knows that, right? Everybody heard that phrase, 39 stripes? You're supposed to get 40 stripes. 39 was mercy. That was a Jewish tradition. Rome didn't have that tradition. Rome was known as a brutal society. Brutal people. If you were involved or caught for a crime, they just start beating you until you confess. They had a pretty good confession rate, by the way. So they would scourge with a cat of nine tails, leather strips. At the end of the leather strips would be balls of lead. The balls of lead were so that as it came around, it would break, it contuse, it would start to bruise up the skin and make it soft and pliable. Up above that would be little chunks of steel or, or iron, uh, bone fragments, whatever they would grab. So as they hit him, it would bruise it and stick. And then they'd pull it off. And the scripture lays out for us in this simple phrase, and they scourged him. The Bible tells us, well, history tells us, Rome would beat you, and then if you would confess your crime, the beating would become less severe. If you would confess to something you had done, they would stop hitting you so hard. What's the Bible say about Jesus? As a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So they beat him until they were too tired to beat him anymore. And when they brought him back to Pilate, Pilate is so amazed by the fact that he's standing that he turns around to the crowd and he points his hand at him and he says, Eke homo, behold the man. Shredded. But Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew it was going to happen. 
Well, if he knew it was going to happen, why didn't he stop it? Because he loves you. Because he loves me. At that scourging, he took a beating I deserved. But he bore it upon his back for me. Jesus, in Scripture, Scripture lays out this was a plan that God had. In Psalm, or I'm sorry, in Isaiah 52, it says, Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Means they distorted how he looked. In Isaiah 53, 5, it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Man, he did this, but he knew it was coming. He understood what was happening. And then it goes on, not only mocking and scourging, but crucifixion. John 19, 15 says, But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, We have no king but Caesar. Must have made Pilate almost fall over. We have no king but Caesar. Crucifixion. One of the harshest ways to kill any human being invented by mankind. Originally invented by the Assyrians, perfected by the Romans. Daniel 9, 26 said, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be karat, cut off, put to death. After the Messiah comes, he will be put to death, Daniel chapter 9 says, but not for himself. It won't be for his own sins. What did Isaiah say? It's for the sins of the people that he'll be put to death. Psalm twenty-two sixteen says, For dogs have surrounded me. Dogs was a traditional way that the Jew would talk of the Gentile. Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. And they pierced my hands and feet. Psalm 22. Crucifixion. It wasn't a surprise. God knew it was coming. But listen. Then he says in the end of verse 19. And the third day he will rise again. I really want us to be able to grasp the concept because he's just told us all these horrible things. And then at the end of all those horrible things, he proclaims victory. He says, yeah, you know, they're going to bruise my heel, but I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. I'm going to destroy the final enemy, death. I'm going I'm to wipe him out. I'm going to pave a way. I will rise on the third day. On the third day, I'll rise again. And on the third day, Jesus Christ rose. So listen to what he's telling them. He's telling them, I know what's happening. I know what's going on. Here are the specific events. And I will achieve victory, even though. Now, just stop for a minute. And think about whatever hurt is in your life. Think about whatever extreme disappointment or extreme hardship or extreme difficulty you ever faced in your life. And hear the same thing. God saying, I am in control. I knew these things were going to happen. And I will give you the victory. Amen. That's what he's telling them. That's what he's declaring to them. That's what he's promising them. That's what he's promising us. That's what the resurrection says. That it's not all for nothing. But it's all for something. 
We sang a song earlier this, this morning. The song talks about death is a lie. Death is a lie. Heaven is real. Death is nothing. Heaven is everything. We spend so much time being afraid of the one thing that Jesus came and conquered and said there is no death. All there is is a birth into his presence. To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Whatever circumstance we're facing, whatever difficulty we're going through, even should that difficulty never be lifted, it will end ultimately in victory when you stand before Jesus Christ. Amen. You just got to believe. It will end in victory when you stand before Jesus Christ. I don't have answers for everything that happens in life. But I just told you the answers I do have. God is in control. He knows what's going on. And in the end, he will give victory. Jesus takes his disciples aside. They're his disciples. And he tells them these things to prepare their hearts, to get them ready. But the scripture goes on and tells us this interesting thing, this little interesting story of a good Jewish mom, right? Because every good Jewish mom wants to promote her kids. So she comes to Jesus and she says, when you come into your kingdom, when you come into your glory, can my son be on your right hand and on your left? Bible tells us she's present at the crucifixion. I wonder when she looked up at Jesus on the center cross with two thieves, one on the right and one on the left, if she wondered about those words that she asked him. When you come into your glory, when you win the greatest victory, can my son be on your right and left? Do we always know what we're asking? No, she's saying, she thinks she's trying to promote him. When Jesus becomes king and he sits on the throne, can one be on the right and one be on the left? But Jesus becoming king occurred at the cross. That's why Jesus said, the first thing Jesus said to them was, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking because the guy on my left hand and the guy on my right hand have been chosen by my father. And they were the guy on the right and left at the crucifixion. Thief one, thief two. One believes, one doesn't. Jesus said, can you indeed drink the cup that I will drink? The cup, guys, in in the Jewish mindset, in Hebrew idiom, that's a cup of suffering. Can you drink the cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? The same cup that Jesus said, this cup could be passed from me. If there be any other way, but there is no other way. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That same cup, they, he said, can you be baptized with what I'll be baptized with? This, you imagine the suffering that Jesus went through. The crucifixion. And we don't even talk about it in the, in the terms that it's done. And, and, and even for those of you who saw the passion, it's not exactly like that either. As bad as that was, it's worse. We can't even begin to fathom it. But Jesus says, can you face these things? And you, did you hear what they said? Oh yeah, we're able. And that, that, isn't that how we sound? Isn't that how we sound sometimes? You know, before the heat is turned up in the furnace, the clay pot sitting there is thinking, I can handle this. Oh, this is a piece of cake. 
You know, I sat on the potter's wheel, and that wheel spun and spun around. I was a little dizzy, I'll give you that. I was a little dizzy, but, you know, as he dug down into me, and he pulled out all the junk, and he was really folding it, forming me and making me into the pot that he wants me to be, he created this pot, and, and it, hey, that's the worst of it. That's the worst. How bad can the furnace be? I mean, he's not even got his hands inside of me no more. Yeah, we all sound like that until the heat comes up. And then the screaming starts. Ah, where are you, Lord? Let this bring comfort. He's the one with a hand on a knob. He's the one controlling the heat. It's not somebody else. It's him. That's why he said, I won't give you more than you can bear. God knows what he's doing. We are perfected or completed in the furnace of affliction. It's in the furnace of affliction that God does these things in our life. And he's the one, on an, he's the one that turned it on. How can I love a God like that? How can I love a God who turns the heat on? Because that heat, remember what we just talked about? That he's preparing you. He's preparing you. I take that clay pot and just let it dry out. What happens to it? Cracks, crumbles, falls apart. It's useless. I can't even put nothing in it. But I put that clay pot in there and I crank up the heat. And I let it cook, man. And I mean, it cooks. It gets glowing red hot. It gets perfected. Now it can hold that water, the living water that it needs to hold. Now it can pour out. Now it's a vessel for honor, something that can be used. But it's perfected in the furnace of affliction. And God's the one doing it. But it's all for a plan. It's all for a purpose. Listen, then Jesus said in verse 25, the disciples, the Bible says the disciples are all mad. They're all mad. The Bible speak for greatly displeased means extremely ticked off. They're mad. Well, think about it. You're part of this group around Jesus. You know, everybody's kind of copacetic. But then this guy's mom comes in and says, Well, you make my two sons the greatest two disciples on the face of the earth. And they're mad. Two reasons. One, they didn't think of it. They didn't have their mom come down. Two, because, man, that's unreal that somebody would go so far to do something like that. That's crazy. How could they think? So they're having this fight. Now, how many times did you hear this fight? This fight, how many times did you hear it? How many times when the disciples are together, does the Bible say they were arguing about who was the greatest? Because they're still having this fight. You ever had a fight that goes on and on and on? See, it's not just you. The disciples had them too. The Bible says Jesus pulled them together. Literally, he brings them really close so they can hear him. And he gives this incredible teaching, not only on the idea that God is in control and the Lord knows what he's doing, but then he says, but if you're going to follow me, you have to have a commitment to serving. A commitment to serving. Look what he says. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, those who exercise authority over them, but yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your diakonos, the word from which we get the word deacon, servant. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be the servant. Everybody asks, how do I get to be a deacon? Let me solve some of that for you. Serve. 
Start acting like a deacon and you'll be amazed how quickly, poof, you become a deacon. The word means to servant, to servant, the, that diakonos, to be a servant. If you want to be great, be a servant. But listen, then he goes one step further. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your doulos, slave. Diakonos, servant, let him be your doulos. Doulos ought to be familiar. We kind of Christianize doulos. We make it this pretty word. Let me tell you what it is before we purtyize it. A doulos is a slave with no rights, who does not have a choice over his life or what happens in his life or what occurs in his life, but everything in his life is directed by the master. He says, if you really want to be great, be a doulos. Paul would begin every one of his letters with that phrase. Paul, a doulos of Christ. A bond slave. A slave with no rights. A slave submitted and committed to the will of the Father, given wholly and completely to Him. A doulos. Jesus said two things to them. You want to be great? Be a diakonos. Be a, a servant, one who's serving, looking out for the needs of others, looking out for ways that you can help or be part of the solution. But then He goes, he goes on and says, But whoever desires to be first, let him be a doulos. Let him surrender his rights. Let him surrender the rule in his life. Let him surrender all those things for the excellency of knowing Christ. And then he says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. See, Jesus, that's what he did. That's the picture he paints. He doesn't ask us to do anything he didn't do. Do you hate leaders who ask you to do something that they're not willing to do? Yeah, it's, it's not good. You're going to lead? Jesus said, come and follow me. And where did he go? To the cross, to the mocking, to the scourging, to the crucifixion, and to the resurrection, to the victory. Jesus said, just like the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Well, Jackie, I thought you said Jesus died for all. He did. Well, here it says he gave his life a ransom for many, and many is not all. You're right. Many is not all. The word is anti-Lutheran. It means the, the, the idea of the substitute. He gave his life as a substitute for many. But if we, we turn over to 2 Timothy, and we're going to... As we wrap up, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 6, I want to say. Sometimes I don't say what I want to say. <clears throat> yeah, second, second, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. 1 Timothy 2, 6. It says, Who, Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So Paul says he gave his, his life to be a ransom for all. Jesus said he gave his life to be a ransom for many. Obviously, we have a contradiction. Something's wrong. Oh, but when we, when we delve into the Greek, when we, when we pour ourselves into the understanding, this is what we understand. When he says, I'm a ransom for many, he's speaking of sufficiency and efficiency. 1 Timothy 2.6, the word that's being used is that his death was sufficient for the whole world. But in Matthew chapter 20, he's saying his death was efficient for those who believe. 
It was sufficient for all. But it's efficient for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He gave his life a ransom for many. Whosoever could call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Man, when I, when I go through, and I, as I was preparing, as I'm studying, I have to read through all the Old Testament scriptures that speak of the crucifixion. I always come to Isaiah 52 and 53 and blown away by the love of God that I see on those pages. This morning we have an opportunity to celebrate that in communion. So as the worship team comes up and as we prepare our hearts for the communion that we'll receive this morning, here's what the the Word of God declares for us. Man, all those areas in our life, all those things that we face, all all those disappointments perhaps that we have with God, God's comfort for us is not that I'm going to make all the hurt and pain go away. His comfort for us is, I'm there, I know what I'm doing, trust me. Let me bring about that ultimate victory. And when we come together for communion, don't you see that's what the ultimate victory is all about? What is it? Communion, we talk about the broken body of Christ. His body broken for us. That's the bread. The cup is His blood shed for the remission of our sins. Here at Calvary Chapel Buell, the only thing you need to partake in communion is faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe, it's yours. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember what? Not that I went through this incredible suffering and that life is so hard, but that through that time of suffering, through that gift that Jesus gave, He bought for us The victory, the ability to redeem whatever is sideways in your life. And that redemption will occur when you see Jesus face to face. Amen? Let's worship. the body this is the body this is the blood broken and poured out for all of us this communion we share